Our scripture text this evening is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to chapter 8, verse 2. Hebrews seven twenty-three through 8, verse 2. That can be found on page 1,280 of your pew Bibles. And in connection to this passage, we will be reading the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30, which can be found on page 234 of your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Hear us now, O Lord, that we might understand just how much Christ has done for us in his sacrifice, as well as how fitting his words on the cross truly were that it is finished, atonement made, a sacrifice done, a war won. We pray that we would be those who cling to that hope who benefit from that truth and place our faith in that instead of anything that we could turn to now, where we turn to you alone and your finished work for your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we read this text from Hebrews, pay careful attention to the way in which it describes the sacrifice of Christ, not only its superiority, but as well as it is accomplished and finished. Hebrews 7, beginning verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's where we'll stop our reading. Obviously that argument does continue, but we're interested for our purposes in those statements about the accomplishment of his sacrifice and him being seated in heaven. Now we turn our attention to Lord's Day 30 in conjunction with that truth as well as we seek to understand God's word on the Lord's Supper and what it means and in this case especially how it's distinguished from what others have taught about the Lord's Supper. Question and answer 80. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. 
But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the mass, mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. You can hardly begin to explain or talk about this Lord's Day and not mention how it has fallen on rather hard times in this day and age, where there are whole segments and and churches in this day and age who would reject what Lord's Day 30 is saying. It's come under significant disapproval. Churches like the CRC or RCA who go so far as to really make it a relic of the past. That as, as The best they could maybe say about it is perhaps it described what was true of the Roman Catholic teaching at that time, but it is no longer the case and no longer an accurate depiction of what the Catholic Church teaches. And thus they would hold that it is no longer binding for a time in the CRC and it still may be that way that it's relegated to a footnote in the book. Does this, is this true? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Do we truly represent what Rome teaches? But even phrasing it like that, I, I actually want to steer us away from that. And what I mean is this, not that we're not critiquing the Roman Catholic Mass. We are in this respect, and we're, we're open about that. But what I'm more important, more, what I view as more important, what we deem as more important, is not that we critique Rome. It's that we uphold the gospel. And that's the whole point. The Heidelberg Catechism has long been rightly praised as a document that is incredibly warm, that's pastoral, that's comforting, and that even seeks to unify those who might disagree to present what is a very true depiction of God's word, but yet that does not bind consciences where it shouldn't. And so some who may even agree with the content of Lord's Day 30 disagree and say, this shouldn't even be here. It's, it's out of tune with the rest of this catechism. But they would say it sort of glaringly jars you that all of a sudden here they are giving this polemical question and answer against Rome and seeking to bring it down. But over the years, I have continued to appreciate this Lord's Day. And one of the reasons I appreciate it, and I hope that we all would, is that despite being a warm document, despite trying to unite as, as much as they can those who would be reading and educated by this document, they draw the lines where they need to. 
And this isn't the only place where the Catechism preaches and teaches from God's Word what the Scriptures say and thus bring it into disagreement with other churches, other segments of the day. You just imagine what kind of confession we would create today if we, we decided, yeah, let's be as inclusive as we can. Let's try to, to bring everyone in the fold and yet didn't draw lines that were necessary. That's been done before. Churches who would put forward the need that we need to be so unified, but, but doing so at the expense of the truth. We need to be unified, and we seek that. And even this Lord's Day is an effort to gain it. But we do, don't do that at the expense of the truth, even at the expense of the gospel. And that's what's really at stake here. On the surface, you may just think this is a difference of opinion on the Mass and the Lord's Supper. Who cares? The reason this matters is because it gets at the fundamentals of the gospel itself and its right interpretation and application to the church. It shows us what we would actually believe about the gospel depending on the stance we take here and what is needed. And that's why we should appreciate its stance and the line that it takes, though without doubt a strong one. Although it is true that those who critique this Lord's Day strong stance actually don't understand that this was written at a time when the Catholic Church in far greater measure turned and anathematized those who would hold to what we believe. And so the Catechism's response is in that day and age not so out of the ordinary, not so wrong-faced. And in fact, the Catechism does not critique anyone specifically. It critiques a practice, a doctrine and condemns that for what it is. And so we must truly understand the gospel through truly understanding this. And this is especially important now in this day and age as we do need to understand the differences as we are so apt in our day to cozy up to what Rome might declare and teach. And in some areas we are very much aligned sanctity of life and certain things like that where we would say yes they they believe what we do but we must understand what they don't we must understand that we do believe rome the roman catholic church and what it truly proclaims from its own teaching is a false church and this lord's day gets at that and explains why so what we'll see is the gospel highlighted by the difference what do I mean there? That what the Catechism is trying to do isn't just bash Rome. That's not the desire. It's seeking to highlight the gospel by explaining the difference, differences in understanding the Lord's Supper. And the first way in which to explain that is the question, justified or being justified? Are we justified in Christ or are we being justified in him and it's an ongoing process. That really is what stands at the center of this disagreement and this debate. I think it's best that we'd understand what Rome does teach. Roman Catholic teaching prefers to speak of the sacrifice of the Mass as a perpetuation rather than a repetition of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It is, strictly speaking, as some would say, not correct to say that the Roman Catholic Church regards the sacrifice of the Mass as another offering. 
meaning those who would understand their, their theology in Rome would tell you that this isn't another sacrifice. It is not as if they believe that they are taking the, the, the body of Christ and putting it through another sacrifice again, and as if each time Jesus goes back up on the cross. That's sort of a, a, a simplistic argument against them that they would skirt and they would say, we don't hold to that. I'm going to read an explanation from one author on Catholic theology. It said, Catholic theology does not consider the Lord's Supper to be a re-sacrifice of Christ. They say that the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice performed in different ways. They might even say that Christ's death is not repeated over and over, and that rather in the Lord's Supper, the death of Christ is pulled into the present for us to enjoy sacramentally. I want to reread that in this quote because I think that does help get at what we'll discuss in a moment. They might even say that Christ's death is not repeated over and over and that rather in the Lord's Supper, the death of Christ is pulled into the present for us to enjoy sacramentally. If they understand their theology, they would probably not say that the Mass repeats the atoning sacrifice of Christ because the sacrifice is ever-present. Rome teaches one sacrifice that is offered in different manners. This led churches like the CRC to back off of question and answer 80. So when you hear something like that, you think, well, are we accurately understanding them? But we have to ask the question, does this use of terminology actually keep the Catholic Church away from the error that the Catechism is putting to it? That's, that the Catechism is, is saying you're falling into, does that use of terminology actually keep us away from, from that, or them away from such an error? You know, they, they use all these terms, a, a perpetuation, a, a representation. But, but how, what, what does that mean, and how does that work? How would we understand that? And so here what you start seeing is the difference in, in, in just asking this question, why does the sacrifice of Christ need to be ever-present? Here's a, another way I could get at it. Rome says that the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice. They'll use that terminology. It's a big word. What does propitiatory mean? It, it means it's appeasing the wrath of God. It, it means it's, it's covering something. It's done to, to take away the sin. It's, it's propitiating God. And that's what they say the Mass continues to do. See, this is when we, where we would say we differ here. And I, I could use this, this illustration. I am not saying uh, that this would be accepted by a Roman Catholic, that they would think that this is fully explaining what they're teaching, but I think this might help us grasp a bit of, of what I'm getting at, what the Catechism is getting at and denouncing it. And that is that we have the cross in a warming drawer. What's a warming drawer for? It's, it's where you, you've cooked something. It's prepared. It's there, and, and you need it accessible, but you need it, you need it constantly accessible. There, there's some time that's going to elapse, and so you stick it into a warming drawer, so it's always there, it's always available, so that you can ever be able to have it presented to you again. It's, it's accessible then. And, but, but what's in, in using this illustration, what's in that warming drawer of the Lord's Supper? I don't mean to be sacrilegious either by comparing those two. 
But for use of the illustration, what's in that warming drawer? Well, it's the sacrifice of Christ. It's a propitiatory sacrifice at the ready. Now, you'd start to see here that this is a completely different understanding of the Lord's Supper than what the Bible presents and what we would hold to. You see, what we read from Hebrews would tell us that the sacrifice of Christ was accomplished and done. No need for a warming drawer. No need to have his sacrifice perpetuated or represented to us. Are we justified or are we being justified? See how Rome would, would have to truly answer it by their teaching and practice is to say we are being justified. It's a process. You see, the Mass and Rome's teaching says you need that. You need to be able to have sins propitiated, cleansed and, and washed away. Now, we know we need cleansing, but we also know that we are already cleansed in Christ. We're already new creatures. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is not a propitiatory sacrifice. And this is why the Catechism isn't misrepresenting not only what they taught, but what Rome practiced. I'm not persuaded that using such terminology about perpetuating it, representing it, having it ever-present means anything more than what you need truly in their theology is Christ on the cross at all times. So that you could, again, using an illustration, always be able to walk up, scoop some of the blood that's dripping off of Christ onto yourself to cleanse you because you need to be cleansed again. That's not what it is. When we come to the Lord's table and to the supper, we do feed on the body and blood of Christ, but not to atone for us in that meal. Rather, to be nourished on the gospel truth that in Christ we are made new. We are forgiven already, justified already. One theologian said it well, Christ, our high priest, having made sacrifice once for all for the sins of his people, may continue to apply and communicate the benefits of that sacrifice through word and sacrament. See, we, we don't deny that. We don't deny that Christ and his sacrifice means that he continues to apply and communicate the benefits of the sacrifice through word and sacrament. However, Christ's work of applying the benefits of his unique, indispensable sacrifice should not be confused with the sacrifice itself. Applying the benefits of what the sacrifice achieved is different than needing the sacrifice at all times different than needing to attend and, and have the Eucharist. The center of Rome, center of a Mass, is the Eucharist. It's an altar. There's not a lot of, and generally, this is, this is a general statement of these Catholic churches, so not a lot of, of importance placed on the sermon itself, on the Word of God. Because really what, what's needed is the propitiation, cleansing. It's this ongoing process. You better keep coming so that you get that. We come to the Lord's table because we are weak and we need nourishment and we need strength, but what that means is we need to be revitalized by the union we have with Christ.
that's already there, that's standing on the, the, the ground of forgiven and justified. Justified, what does that mean? It means that it's as if we've never sinned. It's as if we've never been a sinner. It's as if we've kept the law perfectly. That is what it means. That's the once-for-all accomplishment of what Christ did, and that is what faith does to grasp all those benefits to have our sins forgiven. We could ask, why are, in the Roman Catholic Church, the priests needed to still offer a propitiatory sacrifice of Christ for believers when Christ has finished his work? And on the basis of his merit through faith, will grant and credit his righteousness to those who believe. In that way, why would we need that? And we wouldn't. But see, it's that, it's that difference of understanding of the gospel itself. It's, that, it's the whole point of the Reformation and the five solas there, and especially as it's centered on justification as that key upon which the whole gospel turns. And if you're to deny that, if you're to deny the once for all forgiven in Christ, now what does it become but our works that at least in part have to do something to save us? It has to be our works at least in part that must cleanse. Yes, there's grace in Rome. Yes, it's gracious that the Lord would even offer the Eucharist. And yes, he brings grace, even that there would be no salvation without such grace. And yet there still remains that nagging issue upon which the, the, the Reformation occurred. It's still not up to God. It is up, to, in a sense, to you. And that is what bred a lack of assurance. That is what caused those like Martin Luther to be undone with guilt and undone without knowing if they've done enough. Have you attended enough masses? Have you consumed enough of the elements? Have you, have you done enough to stay on the, on the path of justification and being justified and being made holy? Can you, can you even make it to purgatory where that needs to continue? See what it denies. The Catechism explaining this in question answer 80, the Lord's Supper, on the other hand, declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. There's a big difference between declaring over a criminal, debt paid, sin atoned for all time, or to say you will be forgiven and your debt will be repaid as long as you do the penance, as long as you do what's right and walk, as long as you partake of a perpetuated, unbloody, propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. There's a huge difference there. And we see that played out in history. There is no assurance. There's no assurance in that other, that other progression. But there is so much assurance to know debt paid, sin forgiven, in Christ alone through faith. It changes the whole idea of what the Lord's Supper even is. It changes even our need. The need becomes a need of union and our desire with Christ as opposed to that need for cleansing. Catechism says... The Lord's Supper points to the accomplishment of the sacrifice. It declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. And so now the Catechism raises another glaring error. 
You see, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. We partake of him through faith, but his body is left where it ought to be. It's in heaven. It's ascended. It isn't on the table. You see, so this is another thing that, that it would get wrong to be a propitiatory sacrifice that they need to need to have the body and blood of Christ present there removes him from the throne. What, that's no light matter. Redemptive history is redemptive history for a reason. There's a progression for a reason. Christ came and he died and he said it is finished. Then he rose. Then he was ascended because that declared to all that, that mankind has made it back to God. That Christ is on the throne. That his sacrifice was accepted and not continuing. That his body does not need to be brought to the earth to cleanse us for sin. We're cleansed in him and he reigns and intercedes for us, as Hebrews says. So we have a better high priest. We don't need thousands or millions of priests to offer sacrifices for us continuously. Christ has done it. And a sacrament doesn't continue that. If we still need an unbloody propitiatory sacrifice, then we believe the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. And that's what the Catechism says. What about the call of idolatry? This is where that really strong language comes in. Is it, is it wrong? Is it wrong that the Catechism would say that this is a condemnable idolatry? What strong language? Those who had been in the study committee of the CRC who had engaged with various Roman Catholic theologians and sought to explain it and came away with the conclusion that the Catechism mis misinformed us about this or misidentified their beliefs, their arguments to say that this isn't idolatry, what Rome teaches, is this. They want to say that, that it's not idolatry to worship or venerate the bread and wine because those who venerate or adore the consecrated elements are actually venerating or adoring Christ who is bodily present in them. See, that's what they would say. They would say, this isn't idolatry. It's not idolatry because what they're doing is venerating and worship Christ who's in the elements. Here's the problem with that. Idolatry is not determined solely by the intent of the worshiper. Idolatry is also determined by the practice, by what is done. Scripture is full of examples of people who tried to worship God in ways he did not command. And brothers and sisters, worshiping God in a way that he has not commanded is not worship. It's putting forward a false form of worship. It's putting forward an idol. Whether you would bow down and seek to worship God, whether it be maybe through a golden calf or, or bread and wine, it still is idolatry because the truth remains Christ's body is not present there. But you see how it's all connected. Why it becomes a condemnable idolatry. Denies Christ once for all sacrifice on the cross. It takes Jesus bodily away from the throne, or it must. And then this process that it begins must continue in the afterlife. Dr. Venema has said on this Lord's Day, according to Roman Catholic teaching, past and present, the bloody sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is an insufficient basis for the justification of the faithful on this core element of the evangelical faith, question and answer 80 speaks clearly 
and faithfully. And it's good that we retain it and know it and speak clearly on it, that we're able to identify and know this is what they believe and to adequately present them, truly present them, so that we can also say, but see, that's not the pure gospel. The pure gospel is faith in Christ, justified in him once for all. So that's where the Catechism deals with the understanding of the table itself. But then it asks this, in question and answers 81 and 82, it basically asks the question, who belongs at the table? Who belongs at the table? And so here we shift gears a bit. We, we shift away from an argumentation, theological understanding, what's going on, which is incredibly important. And now we get to that very pastoral tone that the Catechism is known for, dealing with who can come, who should come. And in answering the question, we see the same truth of the gospel put forward, that in Christ there is forgiveness and a right, a right relationship with him. We can answer that question, who should come to the Lord's table, very clearly. Very simply, it's those who belong at the table are those who repent of sin, trust in Christ alone for salvation, and desire to obey the Lord. It is those who belong at the table. And you see that warm response Question answer 81, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. Notice what it doesn't say, those who are sinless. Or those who have done enough to, to enter. So many in our day and age think that's the case, and, and we can even fall into that thinking, I, I can't have the Lord's Supper. This past week, I have done so much sin. I'm broken about it. I am guilty. I can't. I am not worthy. That is not an appropriate reason to refrain from the Lord's Supper because you never come off of your own worthiness. What a comfort. Those who are welcomed at the table, those who come, are those rather who are displeased with themselves because of their sins those who hate their sin and acknowledge that they don't belong off of merit. It says, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. You see, that is a needed element as well. Brokenness is not enough for you to come. Not even just sorrow for sin is enough. It has to be sorrow for sin and a trust. That you would understand that not only are you sorrow, sorrowful and broken for these actions and what you are and what you've done, but that you trust that in these elements is even an act of your own faith by which you grasp and believe the one who does, who does cleanse you, who has cleansed you, who nourishes you and strengthens you. That your remaining weakness is covered by what? By the suffering and death of Christ. And then notice the, the third element, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. People of God, come to the table broken with sin, trusting in your Savior, desiring to live a godly life. Come to the table and be fed and nourished. Don't refrain. Don't ever abstain from the Lord's Supper unless it is a hard heart by which you sin and you don't care by which you sin and you don't repent, and, and then by all means stay away. But when you come broken by sin and trusting in the Savior, you are welcome. 
And the catechism gets to those who should stay away. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So that's what needs to be understood as we come to the table. It's incredibly warm. It's incredibly comforting to know that we can enter, not on the basis of whether we're good enough, but to be reminded of the one who is. To participate with him spiritually. Sinners are welcomed at the table. But here as well, that warning that's taught, this is going back to Scripture. We're not going to read these passages, but 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 22, 1 Corinthians 11, 26 to 32, give very strong warnings about abstaining and those who should not come to the table. And it's on that basis that we read question and answer 82. It gets at those who, who profess, who, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. It's no light matter. It's an unpopular practice in most of our churches when there's a fencing of a table that's done more than just saying, if you're not a member of a Bible-believing church, don't come. There's a verbal fencing. It's not a popular practice done when our churches do that. Visitors might come and might question, why is that being done? They might feel uncomfortable about it. And it is not the goal of the church or the elders to make someone feel uncomfortable about it. It's to protect them. I've never gone to a public event where there have not been fences and ways of directing the crowd and areas that were restricted and signs that said, do not touch. All those things are in an effort to protect the people just as it is to fence a table, just as it is to make sure that there, as best as we can, that there isn't someone eating and drinking unlawfully, coming without discerning the body of Christ, coming and even through their mistaking, bringing punishment, bringing judgment on the whole congregation. It's an act of love to, to fence in that way. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people. That's, that's the way in which they are excluded, to protect not only them, but the church. And how does it use it? By the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. And the keys of the kingdom will be taken up, or have been taken up in the catechism, and we understand it's, it's preaching and discipline. That's why the supervision of the Lord's Supper is so important. Of course, the church cannot judge the human heart, but that's not really actually what they're being asked to do either. Lord's Day 30 carefully describes unbelievers in terms of what they say and do. And so the church is called to, to as well as they can, determine the godly walk and the right belief of those who would desire to come and partake. That's why the Lord has entrusted it to the church. This Lord's Day, then, you see, is actually very important, very necessary, hard-hitting, comforting, but explains a lot, all on the basis of Scripture, expanding, explaining, I should say, what Scripture teaches. And I hope we see through all this that what's important isn't to argue theology for no reason, but to argue it and put forward the truth of the gospel 
to see that it's not unnecessary to call the sins of others out in that way to prevent them from coming to the table, that it's to protect them, as well as that call to the weary soul clinging to Christ, that there's no better meal to which you could come than to this supper, to then long for it, to cling to it. The difference between the Lord's Supper and Catholic Mass, as well as who should attend the Lord's table, all is is put forward in this one truth, that we are already truly forgiven in Christ alone. There's a difference between our understandings of the Lord's Supper, and that's who can come, those who are already truly forgiven in Christ alone. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your sacrament as well as the gift to understand what it truly means to come to the table, to come and partake of your body and blood. We thank you that this is a work once for all accomplished, a sacrifice that has no need to be to be perpetuated or represented or repeated in any way. It's a sacrifice done, and through faith we are the partakers of Christ and thus justified as if we've never sinned, as if we've kept the law perfectly, all on the merit of Christ. And we pray, Father, for us here, our congregation, our church, that we would be those to to illustrate this in the right way, and that if others would come in and see, they would, would rather be drawn in by the care that we take around the elements, by the accuracy with which we explain and understand it, and as well for our own hearts, that we would not hesitate to make use of the Lord's Supper to, to be brought into that depth of a relationship and to participate, to partake of you. We ask this in your name.